Please be seated. <clears throat> there are Sundays as a preacher where I make the decision to take the front door toward the gospel, and there are some Sundays when I make the decision to take the back door toward the gospel lesson of the day, and there are others where I opt to take the side door to the gospel lesson. And I can tell you that today is decidedly a side door day. <clears throat> the science of facial expression has its beginnings in evolutionary biology. Scientists surmise that facial expression begins around the prehistoric waterhole with the earliest humans. As the human walks up for a sip of water, gazes across the waterhole, and sees another apex predator, say the saber-toothed tiger, our facial expression begins. It's an individual thing that happens. Our eyes get wide as saucers, and the expression on our face goes flat. The evolutionary biologist contends that our eyes get wide as saucers, so as much light as possible can enter into our eyes and signal to our brain the breadth and depth of the threat that we face. They also surmise that something happens when we engage something disgusting and potentially hazardous that our eyes become squinty as we seek to focus on that which is disgusting and potentially harmful, seeking to discern through focus exactly what it is that is a threat to our being. What we almost certainly know, that as time progresses over the millennia, the facial expressions of human beings change. They change from simply an individual experience to a communal experience. Humankind begins to communicate nonverbal communication with emotions that come across our faces. As the corners of my mouth are upturned and my cheeks are pressed toward my eyes and my eyes become a bent squintier in a smile, your amygdala begins to fire. And in that firing, your somewhat reptilian brain is communicating to you a sense of well-being, of goodness, of calm, of warmth in a smile. We know as human beings that we communicate non-verbally through our facial expressions. Scientists from Cornell University contend that these facial expressions have been around so long, for so much of human history, that they're now in our genes. 
Cornell University scientists conducted a study on athletes blind from birth. And what they observed is that athletes blind from birth show on their faces both the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, though they have never seen the face of another athlete or another human being. We, through our facial expressions, communicate non-verbally to one another our emotional state. The extent to which we do that, there's no consensus among scientists. And most certainly, those of us who have quirks in our own intellectual development receive those messages inconsistently as far as the norm is concerned. But there is no doubt that we communicate clearly one to another without words through the expressions of our faces. If the early church theologians, the early fathers and mothers of Christian theology are correct in surmising that Jesus himself was both fully human and fully divine. If those early theologians were correct, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that when Jesus reaches this encounter that he has in the Gospels today, his face becomes squinty, his brow furrowed, his eyes roll in frustration and utter exhaustion, and most likely we hear from his abdomen and his chest an exhaustive sigh. Can you believe what these religious people have come up with next? <laughs> now we need some details to have a sense of just what's going on. They're in the story, of course, but sometimes they get lost in our reading and our understanding over time. So we should be clear, there are two separate constituencies of people facing Jesus today. The first we hear are the disciples of the Pharisees. So what we're meant to hear in that reading is like, <laughs> the Pharisees don't have the courage to come talk to Jesus themselves, and so they send their underlings. And then the other constituency of Jewish religious scholarship that we have are identified as the Herodians. These are Jewish followers of a Jewish leader, Herod, who is faithful to the Roman government. So Pharisees, by virtue of their religious position and all of their disciples, would follow the code of Mosaic law. Those disciples of the Pharisees and the Pharisees themselves would not have been permitted 
to pay their taxes to Rome because they've been forbidden to do that through Mosaic law. And then the second group of people regularly, agreeably pay their taxes to Rome. And they come to Jesus with this passive and patronizing opening, patronizing opening to their question, right? Good teacher, we know that you come from God. We've seen the miracles that you've made, and there's no question in any of our minds that you are emanating from the very center of God's heart. Oh, and by the way, could you tell us, is it okay to pay your taxes to Caesar? And Jesus, in that exhausted and annoyed moment, responds with what he responds. Render unto Washington's what is Washington's, and unto God's what is God's. In this exasperated moment, what Jesus is encountering is this classic disintegration that we see in tacitly religious people all the time. The way that we describe it in our church speak is they can talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And Jesus himself is so frustrated with encountering this very real problem. If we were to go backwards from today, 17 chapters backwards, and we were to listen to the speech, the sermon that Jesus gives in the fifth chapter of Matthew's, that one that is well known that we call the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, what we would hear is a different vision for humanity, one that has been blown wide open. It starts, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus, not executing on God's preferential treatment for the poor, that's not what's happening here. Jesus, expanding our understanding around all of humanity, all of humanity is made in the image of God, born of love, and empowered in the kingdom of heaven right here on earth, happening right now in a beautiful way. Jesus insisting that we become integrated and whole in the spirituality that we practice so that it is borne out in practicality in our lives in and amongst one another in creation. After he finishes those blessed, he goes on to say, you, you humanity, you all of humanity, you, every single one of you are the salt and the light of creation. He then says, if salt has lost its saltiness, if salt is only talking the talk and not walking the walk, it's useless and it should be thrown on the ground and trampled under our feet. He says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill, shining brightly, emanating for the rest of humanity, 
all of the creatures and all of creation. Who lights a lamp and then puts a bucket over it? Nobody does that. Nobody who has a sense of their light would ever do that. And yet, and yet, that is the story of humanity and humanity's refusal to embody the divine love in which we were created. It happens globally. It happens locally. Right now, right now, two of the three Abrahamic faiths are going after one another with such violence and horror and terror. And there is no excuse for any kind of violence. We were created in and born of love. It is globally distressing for all of us who find ourselves in our hearts, soft and open, hoping to communicate the love in which and through which we were made to the rest of creation. Locally, it's happening too, right? I sent this whole church an email this week letting you know that the person who sits on the top of our church pyramid has lost his saltiness and his light in a moment of misconduct in the face of ordination vows that expect him to embody the love that we were made in and made for at all times. 365. We as individuals, we as individually created people have a calling that has been placed upon us at our forming that we become salty people, both powerful and persevering and preserving in the way that we communicate God's love to the world, that we, and this is commentary on the scripture itself, of course, but it's most certainly there, that we become the sweetest of all sweet people. That in our actions with one another, with the creatures of the earth, and with creation itself, we embody loving kindness and compassion to all whom we encounter. And that we as individuals express our light clearly and thoroughly and expansively. That we are thoughtful people. That we are an innovative people that we are creative in the creation of acts of love. The gospel, the presence of Jesus amidst our story, makes those demands on our lives as individuals. Now, most certainly, most certainly, those are not the only demands expected of us. Those of you who have been around this church for weeks or months or maybe even days 
received an email that this is our Stewardship Sunday and that our theme this year around the upcoming year, 2024, our theme is homemade, that we each individual ingredients populating these pews, each as individual ingredients come together in a beautiful, somewhat chemical and mystical way to create an expression where one plus one plus one plus one plus one equals infinity. Eat something equals something more beautiful and expressive that we could ever imagine on our own. I went over the course of the last couple days um, to try to find the recipe for the perfect chocolate chip cookie. Do you know that there are thousands of perfect chocolate chip cookies? The ingredients are almost always the same, though there are little variations from here to there, but it's like chocolate chips and flour and baking soda, and sometimes there's a little salt in there. There's an awful lot of sugar and some butter and some eggs, sometimes a little vanilla thrown in there as well. But there are so many different recipes, but the ingredients for the most part are almost always the same. And it reminded me of those times when I was a kid, when I was hungry for a snack and maybe an eccentric one, and I would go into the pantry and maybe most of us have had this experience, and you encounter that bag of chocolate chips, and you're like, yes, chocolate. And then you take the spoon to the bag and you take the spoon to your mouth and you're shocked, right? Like, ooh, what is this? You see, it's not only the power of the individual ingredient, it's the way that those ingredients come together in the expression that we for over 2,000 years, have called church. We come together as strong individual ingredients. We come together to make something that is delicious and soothing and nurturing and loving and warm. I think about the chocolate chip cookie that welcomes the child home from her first day of kindergarten, warm with a cold glass of milk, or the chocolate chip cookie that comes at the end of a feast at the Snake River Grill, where we're connecting one to another, to people we love, to new friends who are acquaintances of others that we are connected with, and how the chocolate chip cookie draws the experience together in a beautiful way. Today, in this church, I invite your coming together. I invite you to contribute what you have. I invite you to contribute your unique ingredient, both in the financial support of this place 
through the work of a pledge. I invite you to contribute your hearts. I invite you to communicate through nonverbal communication, through words, through expressions of physical touch, and other ways your nurture and care for each other. I invite your relationships to deepen and grow and soften. And today, I invite you to continue to contribute your love and your care and your nurture to this community of Jackson Hole through the service of the mission of this church. One more suggestion. When we engage in this work, when we engage in this work individually, when we engage in this work collectively, I invite us to do it with the corners of our mouths upturned, pushing the flesh of our cheeks, forcing our eyes to squint, and communicating the love that we have in our hearts for one another, a love that comes from God. Amen.